Hello and welcome to episode number 142 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, June 30th, 2014. On this installment of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I will be playing the conclusion to my interview with Jerry of the Black Soldier Fly blog. You can find Jerry's blog at blacksoldierflyblog.com. I will also include a link to that on the show notes for this episode. Just this past week, I was featured in an interview for CNBC in an article written by Mark Koba entitled Frankenstates, Winning the Agriculture Tech War. And I will put a link to that on the show notes for this episode. And I will also have some more to say about that later on in this episode of Agro Innovations. Also, I was featured on the Open Hardware podcast uh, with Michael James. And I will also put a link to that podcast interview on the show notes for this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast. Michael and I discussed the use of open source hardware for agricultural and natural resource management applications, an area that he hasn't covered in too much detail previously on his podcast, so it was a welcome theme for Michael and hopefully for some of his listeners. Again, if you'd like to check that out, I'll include a link to that on the show notes. And now here's my interview with Jerry of BlackSoldierFlyBlog.com. So you mentioned commercial applications growing for the black soldier fly. Say more about that. Well, the the primary one that we would talk about today, I think, and that's because, well, it's in our country. I, I know more about it. Actually, the owner is uh, a member of uh, our forum at Black Soldier Fly Blog, um, and I've spoken with him. Uh, but also... He's the first, uh, the, the company's in Viroflight, and um, they are in, they're doing indoor uh, production, breeding and production, which uh, is something that five or six years ago was fairly rare. And they are taking uh, waste from breweries and ethanol production and, uh, and other pre-consumer food waste and raising black soldier fly larvae. And then they're uh, they are harvesting the larvae and producing, uh, I believe, two types of animal feeds, uh, for one for chicken and one for fish, uh, I'm pretty sure. So so he, they're doing that. The last, I haven't really looked lately. Um, the last I had read, they were doing it, they had a license to do it in Ohio where they're located, and they were uh, getting a license to distribute their feed around the country. So uh, th- uh, that is the uh, Glenn Cartwright. Uh, I'll be in trouble if I got his name wrong. Um, is the is the person that uh, started uh, Enviroflight? So that that's uh, very uh, very encouraging. He was also um, interviewed on NPR, National Public Radio, back in September, September nineteenth, I believe it was. Um, yeah, September 19th, making food from flies, and then in parentheses, it's not that icky. 
So, you know, your listeners can go there and see some of the photos, and, and uh, it's about a five-minute audio, or you can uh, read it at the NPR book. Um, I was also very happy that uh, the first use of Black Soldier Fly, the term, they made a hyperlink to my blog, so I was um, very happy about that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's worth checking out EnviroFlight. And perhaps if you go to, you can search NPR, you can go to my blog. I have one of my not too, um, uh, not too far down the page. You'll see a link to the NPR uh, interview. So, you know, to me, when, when NPR does a five-minute piece on, on, uh, on BSF, that to me, you know, it just illustrates how far things have come in about five or six years. Sure, and I'll link to that uh, article and audio clip on the show notes for this episode. Great. One of one of the things that I uh, get a question asked a lot on the comment thread for the, our previous episode on Black Soldier Fly is, where can I get Black Soldier Fly? And you answered this question in that previous um, episode, but a lot of the questions I get are, Notably, from people in Africa or people overseas, not in North America, what would you say to those people? Well, um, I would say that if you um, if you live in a in a fairly warm climate uh, and and typically below uh, five thousand feet of elevation, they're probably uh, already uh, living in your in your area. Uh, and you know, for people that are living in colder environments, um, you know, I can, uh, you know, I can suggest some, well, you know, some searches. You can find sources here. Phoenix worms are, you know, uh, raised for the uh, exotic pet trade as, as uh, uh, lizard food and amphibians and things. But you know, it's a little pricey to buy them because they're raised under, you know, on a special diet under special conditions. But those are black soldier fly larvae. So that's kind of a last resort uh, to uh, to get them in the states. Outside of the country, as I said, you know, and this, the answer is the same whether it's uh, the rest of the world or in the U.S. My, you know, I, I think that by far and away the best way to get the larvae is to attract the adults to lay eggs. And uh, you know, it's 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 hard for me. I have to constantly remind myself that it seemed hard to me in the beginning too. But you know, it's really not. It's more a matter of being patient, and uh, and in some techniques. But you know, they are on. Uh, they are pretty much around the equator and and on up. You know, they they even extend. You know, in this country, they extend up even into Canada on the west coast. There've been uh, cases in Vancouver, up in Connecticut. You know the the incidence of them in the population probably gets less and less as the climate gets cooler. But uh, for anyone in the lower half of the U.S., um, you know, the best way is just to uh, put out some rotting. Uh, you know, I, I go into detail. There's there's different techniques, but basically, if you put out rotting uh, food, uh, eventually they will they will find it if they if they are in your area. And as I said, they are very very common. One one reason that people might not believe they're going to be able to track them is that most people have never seen an adult black soldier fly because they are, in terms of their the, their lifespan, the adults are very rare. The adults only live for I think five to nine days, you know, roughly a week, and uh, and they're rarely seen. You know, the only time most people will see one is when a female tries to find some ways to lay her eggs. So 
it, it's almost you know a, a leap of faith to believe that they're in your area. But in almost all cases, in, in the right climate, uh, they are there. So are they in, assuming the climate is appropriate, Africa, Asia, South America, Australia? Yes. Actually, uh, the, the uh, probably the second uh, most um, interest in, in black soldier plates comes from Australia. There's, uh, there's a, a lot of interest and a lot of uh, experimentation um, and, and people on you know, a residential level uh, tinkering with the black soldier fly larvae. So definitely Australia, all throughout, um, yeah, I mean, of the countries that you mentioned, uh, Israel, uh, we have, um, it's kind of fun if, you're, um, if your listeners go to our website, on the, on the right-hand column, there's the Black Soldier Fly Mapping Project, and, and we use uh, a Google map to uh, pinpoint ad- admissions uh, evidence of black soldier fly larvae. So we, we don't post something on this map unless we've seen photographic evidence. So there's a little trust involved there, but um, you know, when we get a photograph from a place, we'll put it on the map. And if you, um, if you look at the black soldier fly map that we have, um, you'll notice that they are they pretty much around the globe. Um, you know, hopefully we're going to get more submissions from other countries. Uh, being U.S.-centric, we, we get most of our submissions from there. But um, we, uh, you know, we have submissions from Israel, where it's fairly dry. Oh, let's see. You know, the U.K., I don't believe, although it's possible that they would be in the, you know, the southern, uh, southern regions. Central and South America, definitely. There are quite a few uh, all through Asia uh, in the temperate areas. As I mentioned, Australia. So, uh, you know, they they're really only limited by um, by well two things I mentioned before: altitude, but primarily it's temperature, and and how you know the um, the altitude is uh, is a factor there too, which I really don't understand why that is. But the the rule of thumb that we're using now is is 5,000 feet and below. So uh, they're really quite common uh, insect, but just uh, almost unknown. Because but, of their so no tropical areas. Oh, absolutely, yeah. the 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 equator would be anywhere along the equator. I would be almost shocked to, to find a place along the equator. Perhaps a very arid uh, climate, you know, would would be a limiting factor. You know, because the the larvae uh, require a fair amount of moisture. I, I believe seventy uh, percent and more. Uh, moist is is their uh, range. Below 70%, I have read that they start losing body mass. Okay. Now that's just within the waste, so it can be in a dry environment as long as the waste is uh, is moist. So, uh, other than the, the factor of um, you know needing uh, moist uh, conditions to to live in, the larvae are going to be at their most active around the equator, and then you know less so as you go north or farther south from the equator. Well, I can tell you with certainty that they exist here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we are where I am. Oh, probably about uh, 5,300 feet, so a little bit over okay. your 5,000 ceiling. I'd be curious to know if they were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is about an hour north of here, but about probably 6,000 plus feet, or or maybe even more. Um, I'd be curious to know if they're there. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm that's why I'm always uh, cautious with. Um, 
with any of these metrics that you know that I'm giving because you know I was saying a few years ago that it wasn't likely that we were going to be raising them indoors. So you know it doesn't take long to be wrong. Thankfully, uh, as people you know keep experimenting and, and discovering, uh, I was I was shocked to to find them in Connecticut and um, you know even on up into uh, Vancouver and, and Seattle. Um, so it, that's great. I love being wrong when it's when it's like that. Uh, and and I would ask, I'll ask you the same thing I ask almost everybody, which is, you know, if you can ever get some documentation, a photo, and um, you know, a, a, a report of um, some black soldier flies at that uh, those higher elevations, that would be great. And I would I'd really appreciate it. Absolutely, I can do that. Um, I have to wait till the summer months when they're active, but uh, sure. I can sure do that. Excellent. So, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, Jerry? Uh, well, you know, I touched on um, this is this is not something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but the um, you know I think it's becoming more of a common theme, and that is the growing population of people and and uh, how much energy it takes to raise food to feed people. And uh, it was a few years ago the UN did uh, a study, and their conclusion, I believe, just to you know paraphrase, is that uh, Really, one a, a key solution to hunger is to eat insect protein, and I believe half the people on the planet already eat insect protein, and you know us in the West, uh, of course, are repelled by it. But if you look, uh, I'm going to give another plug to uh, to uh, Katrina Unger. Well, not a plug so much. I don't believe she even has a product, but she's done a lot of work. She's she's perhaps developing a product for raising uh, black soldier fly larvae, which is not that unusual, but she's doing it expressly for uh, the purpose of feeding humans. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to say, you know, with any certainty what happens with population or how difficult it is to, to feed people, but the, you know, if if we do reach a critical point, you know, at some time in the, in the future, uh, black soldier fly larvae are just um, the ideal, I would say the ideal solution to the the problem because we can take, you know, relative, we can make waste safe, feed it to black soldier fly larvae and create a very nutritious uh, uh, protein uh, source and, and fat source. So, you know, the uh, I, I just bring that up because the applications, you know, the black soldier fly larva, larvae are going to be, in my opinion, absolutely part of uh, humans' Uh, you know, systems for dealing with our waste going forward and and at least uh, involved in our, you know, livestock production, whether it's fish or chickens. uh, Pigs uh, eat black soldier fly larvae very enthusiastically. But, but, you know, there's that next step we can always take too, which is, uh, you know, a great uh, source of nutrition for for humans. So, um, you know, it just, it's hard to imagine... uh, um, the directions that this can go, um, and then there's biofuels from the fats, and there's you know, the the chitin can be used from the exoskeleton for for a lot of different um, purposes in industry. Uh, so, you know, it's something that people will be hearing about in the future. So, you know, I just encourage people to be an early adopter. Well, Jerry of BlackSoldierFlyBlog.com, thank you for your interest in appearing once again on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you for all the great work you're doing, and thank you for this interview today. My pleasure. Thanks for letting me talk about my favorite bug.
As I conclude this episode of Agro Innovations and the interview with Jerry of Black Soldier Fly blog, I have a little bit of extra time uh, to share with you an article that was recently featured on the CNBC.com website by Mark Koba. And the article is entitled Frankenstates, Winning the Agriculture Tech War. Now, about three weeks ago, Mr. Koba got in touch with me uh, wanting to know about some of the technological innovation taking place in the agricultural space uh, as he researched this article. Now, as often the case with these types of interviews, uh, Mr. Koba and I spoke for probably about 20 or 30 minutes, if not longer, and there was only a small quote from our interview in the actual article itself. The article talks about a lot of different technological innovations in the agricultural space and then concludes with a long discussion of the state of genetically modified organisms or GMOs in the agriculture space. Um, so that's a in some ways, it's kind of old news, but it certainly is still controversial. Uh, but I'd like to share, actually, my response to what Mark Koba featured from his interview with me. And this is on the Agro Innovations blog, if you are interested. I wrote, recently I was interviewed for a CNBC article by Mark Koba entitled Frankenstates, Winning the Agriculture Tech War. In it, Mr. Koba had the following passage taken from our interview. While most tout the progress that technological innovation has brought and will bring to agriculture, there are still words of caution about its impact. Quote, the trend for things in agriculture is to get bigger and more consolidated, and that's creating two markets, said Frank Aragona, CEO of Agricultural Innovations, an information source for agricultural strategies. Aragona, who has a master's degree in forestry, said the worry is that large farm operations can more easily afford the new high-tech advances, while smaller farms can't, creating a technology gap of sorts. A farmer may have a tractor that's 20 years old now and outdated, he said, but many farmers are saying it's too capital-intensive to go out and buy the newer, more advanced models. And so that's the extent of my um, participation in that article, although, like I said, the interview was much longer. So I continue in my blog post. While the quote illustrates a recurring theme in our interview, namely the increasing capital-intensive nature of industrial commodity agriculture, it does not provide the full context of my comments. Commodity agriculture is growing ever bigger, pushing the boundaries of yield per acre, increasing the need for industrial-scale inputs and machinery. This has created the get-big-or-get-out dynamic experienced by so many farmers, particularly in the United States. Commodity agriculture requires bigger machines, bigger science, bigger markets, bigger acreage, and ultimately, more consolidation. What was left out of the article, however, is the countervailing trend of small. This is a trend largely driven by consumer demand to purchase food that is sourced locally, produced sustainably, and built upon a relationship with the farmer and her team. To be sure, the percentage of the nation's food coming from this economic model is still minuscule, but rising. And with it, rises a recognition of the importance in supporting alternative models to industrial agriculture. This trend 
extends into the realm of technological development. Rather than waiting for big ag and corporate America to invest in appropriate scale technologies for the small and medium-sized farm operation, we have instead opted to build these technologies ourselves. An open-source ethos accompanies this can-do attitude as we, as we seek to build the hardware and software that will assist producers with a range of farm activities and challenges. And here's a bullet list of these hardware and software technologies that will assist these producers. One, sensor networks to detect changes in climate, soil, and water conditions in real time. And here I link to the Apatronics website. Aerial monitoring tools like fixed-wing drones for imagery collection and analysis. And here I link to my article from uh, an interview with Doran Cox on fixed-wing drones. Actuators to digitally control legacy infrastructure like fence gates, well pumps, irrigation valves, and greenhouse ventilation systems. And here I link to uh, the Aquaponics in Oakland YouTube video that is on the Agro-Innovations website. And finally, wildlife monitoring tools like trail cameras to get accurate head counts and monitor the conditions of elk and deer herds. And here I link to a website called DIYTrailCams.com, which you may want to check out. It's a forum-type site where a lot of people are working on these uh, DIY, trail DIY trail cameras. The article continues. FarmHack is an organization acting as an umbrella for many of these activities, but other tr projects have also made great progress in the development of open-source agricultural tools, notably the Open Source Ecology Project. Together, we are developing a set of tools that are freely available to all, with open hardware specifications, built on top of open-source software code, with freely available documentation. We believe that appropriate agricultural technology should be a part of the commons, much like the natural resources on which sustainable food production depends. Therefore, we are building a collaborative network to develop and deploy these technologies around the country and around the world, with the hope that freely available, open source, appropriate technologies will help us confront the many social, economic, and environmental challenges of 21st century civilization. So that complements what I thought um, was an incomplete treatment of my comments in Mark Koba's interview. And I say that with no ill will towards Mark Koba. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to be interviewed for a CNBC.com article. And uh, Mr. Koba was very gracious with his time and very insightful with his questions. And I'm sure that uh, writing these articles requires a great deal of research and many interviews with a number of different people and it's only fair that he includes all of that information in his article. However, um, I also feel that the gist of the point I was trying to make in the interview with Mr. Koba revolved around this, as I call it, countervailing trend of small that has coalesced around the development of open source appropriate technologies for natural resource and agricultural applications. So anyway, we can, we have to get that word out. And I did get a pretty good bump of traffic from the CNBC article. Although it's interesting to note that when an article like this comes out, you'll get that initial bump of traffic uh, to the website. 
you know, within the first 24 hours and then it just drops off a cliff. It's amazing how uh, the Internet works these days. Our attention spans are getting ever shorter and information gets stale within a 24-hour period. So that's pretty remarkable. Of course, also, this is probably not an area of great interest to a very broad sector of people like the um, stock price of Facebook might be, for example. So again, thank you to Mark Koba for featuring me on his article. And I, again, will link to that article in the show notes for this episode. And if you get on the Agro Innovations blog right now, you will see um, an article entitled Trends in Ag, Consolidated Capital versus Open Source Innovation. And that's the article that I just shared with you. Now, also, don't forget, uh, I was featured on the Open Source Hardware podcast with Michael James, and I'd like to extend a great thank you to Mr. James for featuring me on his podcast. Um, it's a, probably a, f- a fairly small podcast, similar to the Agro Innovations podcast. And I really enjoyed talking to Michael about all the different things that are going on in open source technology development for agriculture. This space is really picking up right now. Um, and things are moving so quickly that uh, I'm certainly having a hard time following everything that's going on, but certainly everything that I am following is exciting, um, and we will see where this leads us. The Agro Innovations Podcast is an independent effort brought to you by myself. I do all the production, all the interviews. And I have been doing this podcast for many years now, actually, probably about six or seven years, although there have been some long breaks in between those times. And many of the people who listen to this podcast are longtime listeners, and I appreciate your support through listening. I also appreciate your support when you donate, and if you would like to donate to the podcast, please click on the PayPal Donate button. On the right-hand side of the agroinnovations.com website, you can't miss it. Your donations are greatly appreciated, and they help to keep this podcast on the air. If you have comments, ideas, suggestions that you would like to share with me, uh, please send them uh, to info at agroinnovations.com or podcast at agroinnovations.com. You can click on the contact link uh, for the website to get in touch with me. These days, there's only an email there. Um, But I will likely uh, take your information into account. I have had people get in touch with me with uh, suggestions of people I can interview. In some cases, they have suggested that they would be good candidates themselves to participate in the podcast. I have no problem with that. If I haven't gotten back to you yet, um, it's just because I'm busy and this podcast is not um, a major focus for me right now. But I am putting out episodes on a regular basis. So if I do, and I also had a major backlog of interviews for the podcast uh, going all the way back to 2011, which we just recently wrapped up. And then another backlog, as I was getting those old interviews out, I recorded a bunch of new interviews. And I'm just wrapping up the last of those next week, or at least for the next episode of the podcast, I will be wrapping those up completely I will be featuring uh, the host of the Agricultural Insights podcast. So in preparation for that, you might want to check out Agricultural Insights. 
Uh, just Google it. It should come right up. And the host for that, I believe, is Chris Stelzer. And he uh, his podcast is really similar to Agro Innovations in a lot of ways. So I think our conversation is really a great one. And I'm sure many of you will appreciate uh, some of the themes that we touch upon. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.